Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here today with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Brachot Mem Aleph 41. Uh, we have a couple of announcements today. Uh, just so that you know, we have opened a Facebook page for Talking Talmud. You look for us there, you will find us with our logo. And we are posting there the same thing that you get either via your podcast app or the WhatsApp group, but you can now also access each day's episode on Facebook. And we're also sharing other information, articles, memes, the occasional update there as well. Another announcement we have discovered, thanks to Michelle Farber, who brought it to our attention, um, that our Talking Talmud is number nine on the Apple podcast, podcast charts of Judaism episode, I don't know, Judaism podcast coming out of the United States of America. And the list is long, meaning there are many, 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 many podcasts that are categorized as Judaism in one way or another. And we're very proud to have made the top 10 or top nine um, in just 40 days. Thank you for listening. You have definitely contributed. Um, Okay, now today we're going to start, I'm going to start with basically what amounts to a continuation of yesterday, where I ended up yesterday, um, this discussion of what happens when you have made Hamotzi um, and, or the phenomenon of Hamotzi covering the other brachot that you're going to have later in the meal, let's say. Now, really, let's take a step back. I want to think about this for a moment. There is an impulse amongst Chazal that is evident both um, because it is said as much directly and also in in all kinds of different positions that they take, there's an impulse to minimize the number of brachot. That as much as we're supposed, there's a tradition of saying 100 blessings per day, the fact that tefillah is replete with brachot, the fact that we make blessings on all kinds of foods and other things, nonetheless, there's this impulse to um, constrict them, to let's some same to bring them together and subsume one under the other under the other to the extent that is possible. So for example, what that means is let's say you have a meal, and this is the example that Rav Papa brings in our Gemara at the very end of of Daf Mem Aleph Amabet. Amar of Papa, machmata suda. You're having your meal. Now at your meal, and it's talking about a proper suda where you will wash. You, meaning wash, you will have bread, which which bread being the staff of life, bread being the most important bracha that we have of amongst the birkat hananin. So the idea is that once you are having your bread, you are subsuming everything else under it. So this is what happens in this gemara. Anything that comes together with a suda, if it's within the suda, you do not need additional brachot. So, for example, you've had your bread and now you're going to have your string beans. So you can just eat the you can just eat the vegetable. You do not need you do not make another bore priadama because you've already subsumed it under your hamotzi bracha. And what if you have something that is not customarily part of your meal? Well, then you make a bracha rishona. You do make the blessing beforehand because it's kind of like a surprise. And this practice is probably most known um, on Rosh Hashanah when we have the the brachot on, on, let's say, your apple that you've dipped in honey. Whether or not you do the simanim or not, you're still going to make a blessing on that apple because that's not a customary part of a meal. Maybe on Rosh Hashanah it is, but other than that, so it interrupts the regularly scheduled program, but you don't make a 
a special after bracha for your bori priya it becomes part of the meal and then you make your birkat amazon all together um and if you finished your suda then bracha and a new bracha bracha beforehand and a bracha afterwards the Gemara continues, and with this, I'm going to, after this one point, I'm going to hand it off to Yordana, who has much to say today. Where says that they asked Ben Zoma, who was again one of the Tanaim, they said, Why did the Chazal say that the food that comes, that comes in the midst of the meal, does not require a bracha before or after? They asked him why, meaning, like, please explain this to us. Because it's pot, because it's bread. I'm sorry, potartan. Pot um, makes everything else exempt because it is just that important and it kind of subsumes, as I keep saying, it subsumes everything else under it. And then there's, the Gemara goes on to say, Well, then shouldn't the wine also, shouldn't the bread also exempt the wine, right? You know that we have Kiddush first and we don't include it under the bread. And the Gemara ends, going on to the next page, Shani, Yayin, Degoram, Bracha, Latzmo. Wine is in a different category because it requires its own bracha to begin with in the context of Kiddush, in the context of Havdalah. So it's not about drinking wine as a beverage. It's about being Mekadesh Liyom, being, uh, sanctifying the day with wine. Yerdain, I hand it off to you. Right. So, you know, first I just want to say that I think the it's interesting to see this continued um, status about bread and wine. And I think this ties into something that we mentioned two days ago, that these are two forms that we sort of, two foods, sorry, that we don't eat in their original form, but that we sort of have to transform in order to enjoy, right? Bread coming from grain and wine coming from grapes, but obviously needs to go over some type of, through some type of fermentation process. So I'm just taken by that, that they always have sort of the ones that require transformation or sort of what I would actually say is human um, intervention. Uh, Those are the one that sort of have their own special bracha and, you know, furthering on some of the themes that we've talked about previously it's not, I think, therefore, that Berchad is not just thanking um, God for the fruits or vegetables that we have, but it's also, in a way, thanking God for the intellect we have to make those transformations, to be able to take some of those foods in their sort of natural form and then move them into something that's enjoyed by people in a very different way, being bread and being wine. Um, I love this, that what you're saying. I love it. I think it's so true. And I think that, you know, it's it's so true that we don't even bother to say it. And I'm so glad that you have. Thank you. So, you know, I think that's a theme to just keep thinking about is the sort of where we are in partnership with God and sort of uh, the enjoyment of something is different when we're also part of that creative process. Um, I wanted to focus on something that's really on top, Aleph. Um, which was just an interesting piece about um, uh, the Shivat Minim, the seven species, and concluding with sort of a particular type of Talmudic tool that's used to very often learn halacha. So I guess this kind of will like go into a what's what. So the Gemara is in the middle of a discussion of what do you do when you have two different types of food that are in front of you and which one do you make a blessing over first? 
And, you know, they're, you know, they talk about what if you have one food and then a food from one of the Shivatmi Neem, would you make the one from the Shivatmi Neem first? And then even a further discussion of, let's say you have foods of two types of Shivatmi Neem, which one would you say first? So the Gemara says, Rav Yosef, Rav Yitzchak. So Rav Yosef and some say Rav Yitzchak said, Whichever food in the Pasuk, in the verse that lists the seven species, whichever one is listed first, that is the one you make the blessing over first. Um, and just as a side point, it, it, you know, some of that say it's whichever one is closest to the word Eretz in there. But, but the idea is, is that the one that's listed first is the one that somehow, you know, takes precedent over the other ones. Shanamar. Um, as it states, and then it quotes that verse where we get the seven species from. It's a verse in Devarim, chapter eight, verse eight. Eretz chital suara begethen utainavrimon eretz eight shemen udavash. Right, that the land of Israel is a land of wheat and barley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So you know that seems to be a very very nice interpretation, um, and would sort of solve the problem of what do you do if you're at a table where you have a wheat product. And you have pomegranate, right? Which would you make the blessing over first? So the answer would be wheat. It appears earlier in the verse. It also appears closer to the word Eretz. So that would be the, the, the food that you would make the blessing over first. But now we have a different interpretation of what this verse is doing there. So Ravi Hanan disagrees with this. That the reason for this verse was to give us a different uh, different measurements that are used uh, through these types of foods. And then it goes on to list them. Chita, wheat, ditnan, hanichnas lebeit minuga, bekelav aktefa, besandala, betabotav biadav, huvehein tamin miyad. So we're talking about what, how much time is required for a person to become tame, to become ritually impure, it, impure if they entered a house that was afflicted with leprosy. And so it teaches the following Mishnah that if somebody enters a house um, that has uh, leprosy in it, okay, and he's wearing his, his clothes are resting on his shoulders, and his sandals and rings are in his hands, okay, meaning his clothes, rings, and sandals are not being worn the way they typically are. It's more that he's carrying them in a certain way. He and all of those articles become tame right away. Um, so in the case where he's wearing the clothes or the sandals are on his feet or the ring is on his fingers, the person becomes tame right away, but um, those items remain tahor until it was long enough to eat half a loaf of bread. And this calculation is made on pat chitin, on wheat bread, right? Bread made from chita and not bread that was made from barley, from saor, okay? Because one um, who is, um, and it also goes on to mention that it's also somebody who's eating it, that you're reclining and eating it because you're hungry, which also would sort of hasten the eating. We're not talking about somebody who was uh, sort of eating it in a leisurely way. And I think this is telling us something about the status of wheat 
that it's a little bit more of a more enjoyable bread. But it's interesting that that's the that's the time that's the the shear that we learn from chita. So ra okay barley titnan etzem kisora mitame b'magal b'masa they know mitame b'ohel. Barley is used as the basis for this measurement in a Mishnah, that if you have a piece of bone from a corpse, if it's the size of a barley grain, then that would give, uh, it would convert something to be tummy, to ritual impurity if you touch it or if it was being carried, but it does not give ritual impurity. It doesn't make anything that was in a tent tummy. Okay, so that's the measurement for barley, for se'orah. Gefen, kedei revi'it yayin l'nazir. So for geffen, for the wine, it's that what is the quantity that a nazir, right? A Nazarite, which is somebody who makes three vows. They won't cut their hair. They don't eat any great products. Um, they don't consume any great products. And they also don't come in contact. They won't make themselves ritually impure um, through a dead body. So what's the quantity of wine? It would be uh, Rivi'it uh, Yayan, which is like a, what we call like a quarter Lug of wine. So that would be the equivalent of what they wouldn't be allowed to eat. Te'ena, kegoreret, lehotsat shabbat. So figs serve as a basis for what's the measurement of how much the typical amount or the smallest amount of food that somebody would be held uh, liable for carrying on Shabbat. So it would be a dried uh, fig, okay? So for pomegranates, what is it? It's that all um, uh, tame, like wooden utensils, okay, that belong to ordinary homeowners become pure, okay? They can actually become tahor if you break, uh, through breaking the actual um, utensil, okay? And um, what the question is, is that... Um, when can you say that it's sort of like it's um, uh, at what point would you say that that plea loses that vessel loses its status? OK, of not really being a vessel anymore, or being broken up a more. So Sharim can remove if it has holes in it that are the size of pomegranates. OK, and then uh, lastly, Eretz Zeit Shemen, Amar Rav Yossi Bar Rav Yichanina, Eretz Shakol Shered Kizetim. OK, so what is the land of... Um, of olive oil. So Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Hanina says, um, right, that this is a land where the measures are always the size of, um, of, of olives, right? So in other words, like we learned on the page before, right? I think it was the page before where we talked about is an olive, right? A, a zayat, really a kizayat, really the size of, a, of an olive. And then the Gemara goes on to say, so then the Gemara says, wait, how can you say that all the measures are always like an olive, right? Didn't we just mention all these other measurements that use other food? So rather it says a land where most of the measures are ones uh, that relate to food or forbidden foods have to do with the size of an olive. And then finally, so honey, okay, right, which comes from um, a date honey, okay, this has to do with how much would one have to eat on Yom Kippur to have said that you ate actually on Yom Kippur, and it would be the size of a large date on Yom Kippur. The idaf, hainu shirin beheja min kitve. So then the Gemara asks, okay, what, 
about the, you know, other Amora who doesn't use this for this Pasuk. So the Gemara says, are these, you know, what they're basically asking is, are these measures that are re- basically really written explicitly in the Torah? So no, rather they're going to say these are all Durabanan, these are all rabbinic law, but what this verse is an asmachta. So um, first of all, I just wanted to point out, I think this is a beautiful um, just type of drush on a pasuk, right? A pasuk that we think sort of just lends itself to just saying like, okay, these are the seven species, okay? Um, I think, you know, what um, Rabbi Hanan does with it is really show that it's not just these are incidentally just seven species, but that each of these are species that its measurement, its size, they have a significance in Jewish law itself. And that in a way that elevates its status into being something special. So, you know, I thought of this as like, it's not just the sort of the seven uh, particular types of, 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 of uh, vegetation, or I'm trying to think of the word, or agriculture that we see in Eretz Yisrael, but these are actually things that help us keep Jewish law in our own land in its own special way. And that's why its measurements are important. But then the Gemara also introduced this concept of what an asmachta is. So this will get us into our what's what. So an asmachta is, um, you know, a tool that we see that's used in the Gemara where often the Talmud will reference a particular verse and it will, in order to teach us something about a law, and it will say, okay, this is an asmachta. And basically what this is saying is, is that we know, and we'll talk about this later on in the depth, that there are particular ways of how we can derive Jewish law from verses. So one of them would be something that we call Gezerah Shava. That means a word appears in one verse, it appears in another verse. So what's true of it in the first verse must be true of those same circumstances in the second verse, okay? That would be an example of some of the tools that we use, right? They're sometimes called Midot, um, right? Of... Uh, uh, of how you're allowed to interpret verse to de- derive Jewish law. You can't just, you know, take a verse and say like, oh, okay, this is the law I want to drive. There are actually rules of how to do that. What an asmachta is, is that it's essentially, it's a hint. The Talmud basically uses the in cases where cases where we have a law, it could be something that's de'oraita, that's mentioned in the Torah explicitly, you know, could be mentioned in the Torah, or a de'orabanim, which is in this case. Um, and it's sort of a verse, if it's, if it's one that's Deoraita, okay, that one where it, it's, we say that it's actually from the Torah, we use this as sort of a memory device to remember the law. That's how the Rambam understands what an asmachta would be uh, for a Deoraita. And for a Deorabanan, you know, it's not clear always why they have an asmachta, why they would develop this hint, but it may be that it sort of gives some weight um, to the actual um uh, law itself. In other words, they have this tradition. They don't necessarily have a verse to put it on, right? Where they could say like, we learned X, Y, and Z Jewish law from this, but they're saying, hey, we found a verse that sort of alludes to this. And so we'll tie in that verse to say, you know, it's an asmachta. It's a hint um, that we uh, that we get. Um, so I just wanted to sort of point out that's what, what. And we'll see this concept of asmachta very often in Talmud, but I believe this is the first time we've, that we've seen it since our beginning of Dafyomi. So I know I spoke for a long time, uh, but again, just as a summary, um, I think that this Eretz Chitao Serah verse, um, it shows us two 
uh, often where we have different interpretations of how people translate verses. I think here we see uh, from Rabbi Hanan a really different take of how to interpret this verse that I think, in, again, not only enhances our understanding of the importance of the Shibat Minim, but really sort of elevates it to a way that using those shorim, using those uh, measurements from the Shibat Minim, from the seven species in our own land, actually enhances how we observe Jewish law. And the last piece is just to introduce us again to this concept of asmachta, that sometimes we have verses where it's not that it's a direct way of learning something, but it's a hint to something. It's a reminder of a way that we practice a particular type of Jewish law. Um, I think I just want to add one comment on the asmachta point. The Shivat Aminim, I think, is beautiful and lovely and so um, timely because of, tish, of Tu Bishvat this week. You know, I, I can't, um, it's so nice when the DAF and our current events line up. And I'm sure that happens, you know, a different year. It wasn't Tu Bishvat. I wonder what they affiliated it with then. Um, the, I think of Asmachta as, the, as a proof of authority. Right, the idea that when the rabbanim come and they, they want to link it to a, a verse because it's going to give greater weight to the position that they're taking already anyway, um, and then if they have a proof text for it, and I've been talking about proof text since the beginning of of the daf, since the beginning of brachot, um, then then all the better that they have that like you know that seal of approval um, from from the biblical text, as it were, which is not the same thing as deriving it from the biblical text, as you say. But it's um, but it's it lends weight to the position that they're taking because they're able to connect it back up to the you know God's word. Yeah. So I think right. I think that's really the piece to emphasize. It's it's different than like if we have a verse where it's very clear what the connection is. Right. This is a way of sort of creating rabbinic authority that you know we have a hint to this. We can you know place it upon a particular verse, even though it's not necessarily explicit. But again, I think the other pieces, and it's not using one of the typical ways by which we um, derive Jewish law from Sukim, from verses. So that's our tap for the day. Thank you, everybody, for learning with us and joining with us. As Anne mentioned before, if you have a comment on today's um, episode or thought that you would like to share, please do so on our Facebook page. Um, and we look forward to learning with you tomorrow on the next stop.